Hello, I'm Matt Carpenter, and this is the Good Life Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Good Life. I'm Matt Carpenter. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Wren. Aaron is the author of the Masculinist Newsletter. He has a podcast, also by that name, and a website where he and others write. He is an urban analyst, a consultant, and he has worked in the past for the Manhattan Institute and for other organizations. He's written in various uh, journals and for uh, articles in different papers, more than I could cite right now. But Aaron, we're really glad that you could be with us today. Thanks for having me. To start with, uh, just let's talk about your newsletter, The Masculinist. So, how would you describe it to someone, a guy in church who is not familiar with it? What is it about? What is your purpose behind the newsletter and now your podcast as well as your website? Yes. Well, the newsletter is really a response to the uh, rise of secular men's gurus at a time when men were turning away from the church. So, you know, the church has been, you know, doing hand-wringing for years about, you know, the gender imbalance, et cetera. And then all of a sudden you see people like Jordan Peterson, Joe Rogan, uh, on down to, you know, a myriad of lesser known uh, uh, figures like Mike Cernovich or Stefan Molyneux, uh, who still have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of followers online. There's a bunch of these people. And I'm like, what are they doing right uh, that the church is not? Not necessarily in terms of uh, you know, morality or metaphysics or theological truth, uh, but just why are, why are men turning to them? And so you know, I wanted to basically engage on this problem because I did believe that the church had... Uh, you know, gotten some things wrong in its approach to men. And I wanted to try to uh, essentially, uh, you know, set the record straight and provide a, you know, a, a better way, a more accurate way of, of thinking about things. And we can talk about some of that in a bit if you'd like. And then I also felt that we were really in the midst of a very changing world uh, and the relationship between the world and the church was changing. We were seeing sort of a crack up if you will, in evangelicalism, similar to what was happening in the, the Republican political world with Trump. So there's a lot going on. And I felt that, you know, I had some things to say that were not being said. And so, uh, you know, I decided to dive in. So this is not a perspective that you have necessarily always had in your adult life, though. So, so this is something you've in time come to uh, from from what I've read and what you've said about your background. So just tell us a little bit about your background and how you, know, how you came to see the need for this. You described some of that already, but 
Was there a time when really the switch just flipped for you when you said, we're going about this all wrong? Yeah, I mean, so I grew up in a, a rural uh, community in southern Indiana. I was raised in an Assemblies of God church. Really, as an adult, I would have told you I believed in God and, you know, all of that, but I was really not living as a Christian. And, it was, you know, I moved to Chicago after school, was working as a consultant in the technology space, uh, living large and loving life, as they say. I was partying and, like, living totally for myself, and I thought everything was going great. Uh, you know, I had a lot of problems, uh, you know, you know that I, I kind of ignored. Uh, but, uh, you know, I really felt I was, you know, had a handle on my own life and I, I should be, you know, pursuing the fulfillment of self. And I'd been married. I got married and we didn't have any kids and then uh, ended up getting divorced. And that was a much more, um, you know, emotionally trying experience for me than, um, you know, I expected it to be. We didn't have kids. We didn't have pets. We didn't have any debt. You know, by all accounts, it should have been a very... Uh, you know, simple matter, but it was, it was much worse for me than it should have. And it sort of that, like a lot of people, when things aren't going well, you, you start thinking about God, you start going back to church. So that drew me back to the church. And then I just sort of started taking in, you know, what people were saying, what they were teaching and trying to apply it in my own life. And, you know, I mean, I think I just naively just, you know, just kind of went along with it, uh, which I, I ordinarily wouldn't do because I felt like I was still kind of like in a learner mode. And sort of what I saw was, you know, a lot of it just didn't work. I mean, it just wasn't right. practically the case. And um, so I ended up, uh, you know, and my life was going terribly too. I mean, this, you know, uh, you know, it, it, this this divorce it didn't really catalyze a downward spiral in my life, but nothing went right. Starting with that moment thing, really, nothing went right for about three solid years, and. Uh, it, it's. I always like to describe that period as like it's my own personal Chinatown. If you've ever seen the movie Chinatown, where, <laughs> yeah. with, with Jake Giddis, you know something terrible happened in Chinatown, but you're not quite sure what it is, and that's kind of like, <laughs> kind of like that. And uh, you know, it, sort of coming out of that, uh, it, it really caused me to question a whole lot uh, about my my life, and. Um, you know, I read a lot. Uh, you know, I read a lot online. Uh, read a lot of these, you know, online Manosphere and other sites. I read a lot of other different things and really came to test some things out, uh, you know, in the real world. Uh, you know, I changed the way that I did uh, everything from, uh, you know, diet and exercise. You know, I used to be a big runner. Then I went to barbell lifting and different things like that. And so I made a lot of big changes in my life and things started going much better. I don't think that they necessarily went better because everything, you know, of the changes I made. But I really felt that I saw results out of doing that. And so after seeing those results for a few years, I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm about ready to, to think about engaging that personally. And so then I did, you know, more years of research. On top of that, you know, there's actually a lot of research going on in there, too. Uh, and then eventually I decided to start the masculinist. So that may be that's uh, probably an oversimplified um you know, chronology, but that's essentially what happened. Well, th that's helpful, though, because there are a lot of people who have to start over. 
and you know often in the really conservative churches it seems like you just get to know someone and being a generally liberal society we don't engage other people very much even pastors don't engage their people very much unless someone volunteers information so we're we're accustomed to thinking everybody's okay as long as they don't walk into church drunk or you know anything like that then then you know it, it should be fine when people need to learn how to how to grow not mm-hmm. just grow as in reading my bible for 30 minutes longer every day but actually grow as a man or you know in some cases as a woman because you know like what you were having to do so you know your your newsletter something that i noticed early on i've been reading since 2016 2017 i believe oh, wow. and, you, you were like an og almost then uh, <laughs> pretty close you know i was a pastor at the time and I was understanding some of the things that you were saying, but but your perspective was not just self-help, and, and I don't mean that in any way as a negative, but but you know it's some of the new, some of the additions were for growing as a man. Others were casting a wider view on society. and it didn't it wasn't just one or the other. So it was, it was a more holistic approach to how a man should himself grow, but also in look in the way that he views the world. So I'm guessing that was on purpose uh, in do, you're doing that. Yeah, you know, originally, um, you know, I actually don't view myself as a great self-help guru there are a lot of folks out there on the internet who sort of are, or you know, even pre-internet. You know, there's this, you know, going all the way back to you know probably the the 50s, you know, with uh, you know books like uh, the Power of Positive Thinking, right? And, you know, there was there was a lot of stuff. There's like a big self-help movement, you know, in the 50s. So it's it's been around a long time, and I have some things that I know that people could you know life hacks, if you will, that would help people live better. But I didn't really think of myself as like the greatest like self-improvement coach. Um, I thought I was much better at sort of cultural criticisms, you know, kind of like societal diagnoses. And I also kind of wanted to deconstruct some things that I thought, um, you know, were, were, were incorrect in some of these teachings of the church. But what I really, what I wanted to avoid was just becoming a critic, Right. So I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to try to alternate some of these more critical pieces or analytical pieces with more practical pieces. And so even though a lot of my more practical pieces do not necessarily get as much attention or traction as the other pieces, I feel they're very important because, you know, I don't just want to be a critic or something, somebody who has nothing practical to say about your life. So that's not to say that my practical stuff isn't valuable. I you know, I don't share stuff unless I think it's valuable. Um, but but everybody kind of likes the red meat of when you kind of criticize something. Right. right. And so criticism, I mean, we see a lot of this in our society. You, you know, if you're a conservative, you want to own the libs, right? Or if you're yes. this, you want to do that. 
And, you know, there's a place for that, but I wanted to make sure that I was bringing a balance of different things so that I wasn't just providing a lot of cultural criticism, but I was also providing some like tangible ways for people to navigate it. Well, there, there's the other side, you know, of cultural criticism. And I, I will talk about this hopefully in a little bit, but as, as a, as helpful as that can be, and this is, this is an area where I actually see what you're doing. Don't know if you do or not, but there's a strong pastoral element to this, which is one reason I really like your newsletter, because you can't only tear down. If all, if all someone can do is tear down structures, it, it, you know, to, to verbally uh, throw darts at the structures without actually helping build anything in its place, then you're not really offering anything long-term. I agree. I agree. And it's hard to, it's also hard to beat something with nothing. You know, that's what I call the Republican healthcare plan approach, (laughs) you know, where uh, you may have noticed they don't actually have a healthcare plan. They like to critique whatever the Democrats have been proposing. Oh, we hate Obamacare. We want to repeal Obamacare, which actually they don't. That's another story. You know, they opposed Hillary care. It was great when Mitt Romney did it. Right. They never had a plan of their own, really. And so, you know, they're kind of just being very, very negative towards it. So they have a lot of critiques about the other people's things, but they don't have a plan of their own. And when the public clearly perceive that there's like a problem with the healthcare system, or the cost or many things, then eventually that's kind of a losing strategy. You actually have to have something substantive to replace that thing that you're criticizing with. Yes. Yes. So is there, so as you looked at, at what churches offered and, and what the big name pastors in conservative circles were saying uh, at, you know, a few years back, you obviously saw a need that was not being met, uh, that, that, that men were, were getting some of the, the worst treatment, uh, like the infamous Father's Day sermons. Right. Where men are, are told, you know, essentially, man up, you piece of garbage. And, right. you know, Mother's Day there was a very different message. So, so you were seeing this and what was it? Uh, I mean, what do you identify in the church as the, the need or needs that pastors are not meeting? And I'm not saying it only comes through pastors. Uh, I mean, it can come through any number of people, but what is the church not doing, or, or maybe we could frame this a different way. What areas does the church need to grow in helping men, especially not just say grow up chump, but you know, what do they need to do that they're not doing? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's actually good that I'm not a pastor because so much of the teachings on gender or, you know, manhood or whatever in the, in the church really are not theological. 
um, nor are they, you know, you know, Bible analysis. They're really more life coaching. And when you kind of do life coaching and it doesn't work out and you're a minister of the gospel, then that can seem to discredit, you know, the Bible, to discredit Christianity. Whereas someone such as myself, who's very clear that I'm a cultural critic, you know, I'm not presenting my recipes, if you will, as if they are, uh, you know, the, the Bible or the Bible. So, the, so yes. the biggest example is uh, the whole purity movement and like, was it Joshua Harris? I kissed dating goodbye. Yes. Go read the, I read the book. I kissed dating goodbye um, actually a couple years ago before he pulled it. I read it and it's full of like, well, here's seven ways to do this, eight ways to do that. And it was sort of treated, I think by churches as if this were a biblical pattern of dating and marriage. When in fact, the Bible says nothing about dating. So I think one thing that's really important to do is to distinguish between what's biblical teaching and what you might call life coaching. And it's better in many respects for lay Christians to be doing most of the, uh, you, you know, life coaching or whatever. I think the same thing is true of politics, right? Everybody wants a pastor to have a take on politics rather than letting people who are Christians who are lay people who feel called into politics to engage in that field, you know, in you know, with a different sort of uh, Christian informing. So I think I think there's a there are a few gaps. One you mentioned that kind of you know the Father's Day harangues uh, of these sermons. You know, I stumbled across a book by a British academic named Callum Brown called "The Death of Christian Britain," and he did a lot of research that basically demonstrated that during the 19th century. Uh, is in Britain, but you know this applies here as well. That there was a real shift, and that the church became essentially very anti-male. He said, you know, basically nowhere was the kind of teachings of the evangelicals of that era. Of course, evangelical had a slightly different connotation in that era. Right. But but roll with it. Nowhere did they have a greater impact than in their demonization of men. And I don't know all the whys and wherefores of what happened there. But what I would say is it probably had something to do with industrialization. And, you know, there were a lot of problems with industrialization. Alcoholism was a big problem, you know, the temperance movement, all of that. And this sort of uh, idea of seeing, you know, the, the woman is sort of naturally pure, naturally virtuous, the guardian of domestic morality and tranquility versus the man as the source of vices and evil and the destruction of families, that sort of mentality has carried over into the present day. So I do think that that is very uh, incorrect and inappropriate. You know, in our era, for example, women file 70% of divorces. Overwhelmingly, it's overwhelmingly the case that it's women who uh, cause family breakup, not men. You won't even forget why 70% of women are doing it. You won't even hear that fact anywhere in a no, Christian book on marriage. No. You just won't. I mean, I'm, I'm searching and searching and searching for it. And, you know, the implications of them not including it are not good. Either they don't know it, uh, or which means they probably don't know enough to really be commenting on the issue, or they do know it and deliberately didn't include it, which seems a little shady. Yeah, worse. Perhaps. So, so I think that's, I, I do think that's one. Another one is there's just sort of a lot of, you know, bad information being given out around, 
you know, I think purity culture was a great example. And I think it's clear, like a lot of it really has nothing to do with the Bible. I don't per se think it's all bad theology. It's just bad life coaching and application. So another example, and, you know, so I think there's a need for people to get, you know, to be giving information that is accurate. And one of the things that's, you know, inaccurate is the model of attraction that you hear in these sort of complementarian gender circles. So they will tell you that women want to be with a servant leader, right? The servant leader isn't just something that the Bible tells you to do, but it's something that, you know, is presented as a, it will make, you know, your wife want to have sex with you. You know, the ladies will love you. you know, how many times have you heard that, a, you know, women, Christian woman, want a man who's on fire for God? Well, right. that's just not true. And that's not to say that, you know, she might not, you know, all things being equal, that a man being on fire for God is a positive. But, you know, that's not what drives attraction. Women are attracted to, you know, Christian women are attracted to the same thing all other women are. It's things like power and status, confidence and charisma, you know, you know, looks and style, you know, money, things of that nature. And so I think we all know, right, as men, we know we see what we can see a woman, right, and say, oh, she's really hot, but I don't think she's a good marriage material. I wouldn't want to go out with her. Or conversely, we could say, here's someone I think is an amazing, you know, high quality woman, but I'm not, not attracted, you know, not attracted to her or whatever. So it's, so you, you need to have both. You need to have things that both drive attraction and things like some of these servant leader qualities. Some of them are legitimate indicators of whether someone is a good marriage material. You know, you do want someone who's godly. Uh, you do want someone who's, you know, honest, it's conscientious, those sorts of things. Right. And yet those don't make you attractive. And when all you're doing is trying to be the best servant leader, you're trying to attract a woman by being a servant leader and it's not working. The answer is always to double down on servant leader, <laughs> even right. when that's the sort of the problem. And so I think that those, you know, those are some of the things I see. So I think that's an example of like bad information being given out. Um, and so I think we need to, we need to, you know, rectify some of that, which is some of what I, I tend to do there. And I also think, you know, again, there is a flat-out anti-male attitude in a lot of these pastors, um, you know, that's that's out of line. It's, it's excessive. There's plenty of male sin that could be called out. Uh, you know, there, there's no, you know, so to say you can't legitimately preach against sins committed by men or, you know, rebuke men who do wrong things. You know, men do, you know dump their wife to, to run off with the you another, know, you know, high school sweetheart that they met on Facebook when they shouldn't have been, you know, all that, that stuff happens. The life crisis, it happens, you know, but I think it, it's presented in, in a caricatured excessive way and in a monodimensional way that it's always about men, almost always about men as the problem combined with an extreme reluctance to essentially hold women accountable for anything. And you could actually, when you're talking about Victorian Britain, I know some of the language that was coming out of the women's suffrage movement in both the United States and Britain, it clearly holds up women as superior beings, just inherently superior because of their sex. 
I mean, the, yeah, that I haven't uh, I haven't read reason. that. I haven't read up. But that's not an era I've studied a lot of in terms of this, you know, the first first wave feminism. But uh, it's interesting you say that. Well, so I, I've taught uh, American history for fifteen years and world history some as well. So the the, the women's suffrage movement. So we we talk about that, and also I talk about how some of the first domestic terrorists that we had that were not communist were women suffragettes in Britain who were, you know, planting bombs in various places. So there's some really, really interesting stuff, but, but I don't say any of that to, to, just to uh, gaslight anyone, but you know, that that's just, those things happen, but you can see that though, going all the way back there, you know, you, you can see it in various areas, how it was, planting seeds that are now being harvested. Yeah, it's so, interesting you say that. Yeah, uh, I, I, go ahead. I have to, I'll have to read up. I have to read up on that. All right. So you talked about yourself being a cultural critic. And one of the things in one of your masculinist newsletters, and, and I would say to anyone listening who's, who's hearing about these different newsletters and saying, where can I go? Uh, it can go. They're all free at your website, themasculinist.com, correct? That's right. All right. So anything you have a question on, folks, you can go to that website and the podcast are there. But one of those newsletters uh, regarding the culture was your distinction you make historically between the positive, neutral, and negative world regarding how the world itself views the church. So could you summarize what those three different perspectives are and, and how should that uh, inform the way that we as Christians look on ourselves in, in, in the world? Sure. So the terms are the terms of how the world perceived Christianity. So in the positive world, uh, the world sort of perceived Christianity as a, you know, a positive force. It was, you know, to be seen as a good church-going man meant that, you know, that, that counted as credit for you and kind of being an upstanding member of society. It's like, oh, he's a good moral church-going man. Uh, you know, Christianity was viewed as a positive social force. Christian morality was essentially normative. Uh, in society, uh, you know, you, you might think that this maybe reached its high watermark in the 50s or something like that, uh, but, it, but you know, it had, it had lasted quite a long time. And I would say, you know, it was deteriorating over time. But, you, you know, when, when I use the example of moral majority movement, to even create a movement called the moral majority suggests that you can at least plausibly claim to be in the majority. Now, they probably weren't in the majority then, but it still sort of said something about, you know, the kind of world that was lived in. Somewhere, uh, I argue, it's, I said the year 1994. There's nothing magical about 1994. But, you know, somewhere in that time frame, you know, the status of Christianity had eroded to a point that we tripped into what I called the neutral world. And as I say, the, the world sort of viewed Christianity as a socially neutral way. It would be like, you know, you're into steampunk, you know, I'm into Christianity, she's into veganism. It was just one more thing you could be in a sort of a pluralistic society. So it wasn't necessarily a negative, wasn't necessarily a positive, 
Uh, but it's like, oh, you know, great, you do you. And then I said, you know, that was sort of a transitional phase that then I would say starting, you know, I, again, I used 2014 as the date for this. I don't think there's anything per se magical about 2014, but at least with this one, it's a little easier to maybe tie to the Obergefell decision in 2015, right. which is, a, you know, there, there's a move into what I call the negative world that Christianity is seen as a, as a social negative. Uh, you know, to be known as a Christian could be negative for your, you know, for your social standing, especially in higher status or, you know, corporate positions. Uh, Christianity and Christian morals are expressly repudiated and are in fact seen as threatening to the new moral order and the public kind of public order and, you know, new moral uh, hegemony. And, and so this world that we're in is one you know, that I think the church is really not used to and has struggled to adapt to. And, you know, the, the, I think it was issue number 13 uh, that I that I, that I I wrote on that. It was called The Lost World of Evangelicalism, American Evangelicalism. It has been by far the most read thing there because I think it really gets at something uh, that, uh, you know, that people are sensing but really not trying to re- trying to figure out how to make sense of the world. And, you know, I come from a consulting background, and as a consultant, we create a lot of frameworks that help our clients understand the world or analyze the situation. And I think that's an example of a framework, you know, what I do to create a framework to help people understand the world, to go back to something, what we were saying earlier. I'm not saying that it's the, it's a perfect lens or it's the only lens, but it's one way for us to kind of think about the way that we live, the world we live in. So with that, on one hand, there are a lot of people, and, and maybe uh, maybe the majority of the modern evangelicals, you know, the, 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 the non-mainline Christians in many Southern Baptist circles and some Pentecostal charismatic churches and, and, and the like, but many don't believe that we are actually in a negative world but that seem even though many do not that is changing as they see more and more cultural trends that are displaying there is no background in i mean really even natural law anymore much less overt christianity but my own perspective on that as a public school teacher most people think that public schools christians i mean think that public schools are just just fine at least my public school is just fine now all those other public schools it's kind of like you know how people view congressmen right you know everybody else's congressman is a scumbag but mine is a prince or a princess because you know fill in the blank so many people seem to be in denial but then there are are churches and and circles that are really conservative and not fundamentalist necessarily in the classic definition but very rigid in their orthodoxy and i don't say that in a negative way but they see this is a problem so what and and this could take a long time and I'm not, I know you can't approach every element of, of it, but 
how should Christians who understand we are living in a negative world, how should they approach the world as believers? And not just from the, I'm not talking specifically the spiritual element here, you know, making your distinction about, you know, what in fields one is best qualified for. You're a consultant. You see these types of things. So how should a Christian look at the approach of the world and culture, understanding that we are in a negative world? Yeah, I think that's an area that needs to be developed uh, more, to be quite honest. If you go back to sort of the pre-1994, say, you know, mid-70s, you know, 75 to, to 1995, that was essentially the era of the religious right. You had a lot of um, uh, big-time televangelist types, uh, you know, you had you know Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell, and you had you know, the, the Christian coalition and all these people. And they sort of had a strategy of, you know, fighting with the culture, engaging with the Republican Party. And, you know, and in fact, if you look at that newsletter, I go through all the characteristics of this movement, uh, you know, and, and kind of give you some light on it. Then if you go into the, neg- the neutral world, um, although Christianity is seen as, um, you know, not, not seen positively anymore, what I call neutral world Christianity has more sort of a kinder, gentler face. So you can think of, you know, um, you know, a lot of these urban churches that want to be in the city for the city. Cultural engagement is what I call the watchword of this thing. We want to, you know, participate in, uh, you know, this pluralistic public square. And Tim Keller. Tim and Keller. I said Dwight. Tim Keller. Or James Davison Hunter and like his faithful presence concept. And a lot of that thing is is let's let's not fight with the culture all the time, but let's, you know, let's stake our claim through sort of a you know a winsome engagement with it. The negative world, there really is certainly from a Protestant perspective, there hasn't been nearly uh, uh, as much written on the topic or, you know, really strategies developed for it, which is interesting. The one big thing that I do see is Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, um, which, interestingly, I can't remember the year the Benedict Option was written, maybe five years ago. 2016, uh, I think. Yeah. He, he probably wrote the book about the same time I started the, you know, the, the Masculinist. And he did not get a very good reception, um, you know, and certainly in the evangelical world at that time. And I think, as you said, you know, you, you fast forward to today, his ideas are now have a much greater currency. His most recent book, Live But Not By Lies, had a lot bigger sales. And, and so I think that you, um, you, you know, the times started changing. And it, it's, it's one, of the, one of the challenges of being a guy like Rod or to some extent myself is when you're early, when you're pointing out something early, you end up like Cassandra. Nobody... Nobody really listens to you because they can't right. see it. Right. You know, there, there's a lot, a lot of times it's not good to be the first mover. You want to be kind of like, you want to hit the market at the yes. right point. Yes, yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, now I think people are like, you know, what's going on? So there are, you know, there, there needs to be more thought uh, put into it. And I think one reason is um, 
it's 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 hard to it's hard to to do that is because I think anything that involves this negative world is going to have to involve reconciling Christians to a loss of social status in society. That is an unpopular message. You know, whereas if you you if you kind of look at the New Testament, you really see the idea here that, you know, we're going to suffer social penalties for following the way and you can expect opposition. You know, you can expect, you know, a lot of turmoil and maybe even persecution. I'm not saying the kind of persecution they experience is coming our way, but there was this sense that like to be a Christian, you had to count the cost and there had to be. Um, you had to be able to willing to pay something to do it. And I think right. for us, you can still live a very good life as a Christian in 21st century America. So we're not in that scenario, but there is, you know, there, there may now be more cost to pay uh, than there were previously. Certainly you don't get the benefits that you used to get back in the day right. you know, of the positive world era. And so, um, I, I think that's a hard message. No, you know, you, you always get a better hearing when you're telling people what they want to hear, and nobody wants to hear uh, that uh, things are, you know, there. Yeah, uh, one, one example regarding the the neutral to the negative world. So, so I really came of age uh, in the when the neutral world was just beginning. So I was born in '82. So I, I can remember when the Republicans took the House and the Senate in 1994 and, and watching and listening to, because we had raised on conservative talk radio for, for years, and, and many thought, they didn't say this, but essentially, you know, one more step in the millennial kingdom may be here. You know, th- this, is, this right. is about as good as it gets. But nobody was seeing what was actually going on under the surface. And I, you know, so two books that, that I think make a good distinction. Uh, are you familiar with Carl Truman who used to be at Westminster yes, I, Seminary? I know he is. So in 2011, he wrote a book called Republicrats or Republicrat, where he's kind of giving his perspective on, uh, you know, on the, on the liberal conservative political positions, the spectrum. And it was, it was very moderate. And, but, but then if you look just, I think last year, he published the book, the rise and triumph of the modern self, which is a very strong, very strong uh, description of uh, Philip reef and, and how he talks about how we have become essentially a postmodern mess. Now, those two books, I think, epitomize the neutral perspective and then now how, you know, Dr. Truman, who's, I'm sure, remained largely who he is, but with the, the culture changing, he could publish Republicrats 10 years ago and, and it be received in the neutral world. And then this much more... What, what seems like a stronger uh, culture war type of book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, it, it just seems that that's a, a, a description of the, the change in the two worlds from then to now. 
Yeah, you know, I, I haven't read the, uh, the books, his books yet. I, you know, this Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self has been on my list, but I haven't been able to finish, get it yet. So you mentioned the Benedict Option, and of course, you know, among conservatives, uh, the, the you know the, the strong and uh, faithful Orthodox types that is a draw. The and not even that Rod intended these the you know the, the head for the hills message. That's what a lot of people t- have taken from it, uh, despite his insistence that that's not the case. But. That approach is one that is prominent, but are, are there are problems when people take a get out of dodge view. The only way to, to save yourself is to flee. Uh, you know, so and, and you you've mentioned that type of thing before. So so in, in your perspective, what should the Christian response be then as far as the, the Benedict option itself, is that a viable response or is there something better? There are a huge number of individual points inside the Benedict option book. And so when you think we talk about the Benedict option, it is a nice little shorthand and Rod's got a way with coining phrases that, you know, kind of resonate with people. Uh, you know, I think you got to kind of pick it apart a little bit. Uh, for example, one of the things that he really points out uh, is that a lot of the challenges are not necessarily challenges from, you know, external pressure of the world, but from the fact that, you know, the church itself is extremely weak, that, you know, the average churchgoer doesn't even really believe in Christianity. You know, they believe in this moralistic therapeutic deism concept that, you know, these Notre Dame sociologist identified, which is which is itself a sort of therapeutic Christianity, uh, and uh, you know so they're, they're they're poorly catechized and you know they, they don't necessarily even believe in the Christian faith. They have extremely weak communities. It's you know essentially committed to you know living a purely you kind of bourgeois American culture, and that these churches need to be strengthened a lot more, you know, more robust theology, more commitment to place, you know, more commitment to community, et cetera. And, you know, that's part of it that I would certainly agree with, you know, wholeheartedly. Uh, I think that's much more challenging than uh, people, people think. Everybody says they want community, but nobody wants the inevitable downsides of community, right? Right. And that's why, you know, that's essentially why all, you know, all intentional communities have basically imploded after a period of time. And I think the reality is any community that's worth anything is going to have its negatives uh, that go along with it. And so most of us are not willing to make the trade-offs. We expect to get all the good and none of the bad. But that's when, you know, and and I, you know, I, you know, I even had a conversation recently with Rod, you know, that we did on, on YouTube and, you know, you can listen to it on the Masculinist YouTube channel, you know, where I sort of pointed out the Benedict option is essentially, it is a retreatist in the sense that it's about building an ark, even uses this metaphor, build an ark to survive the flood. Right. So it's sort of a survival strategy. There's no concept of being on offense. There's no concept of positive engagement. 
And I think, uh, you know, the idea of fighting back but doing it in a different way is is not really there. Uh, and then it's a very it's a very negative kind of bleak vision of the future, where there isn't necessarily a, you know as much. It's a little overdetermined, you might say. The right. trends are going this way, which means they will continue going this way, which means we will end up there. When a lot of things are going to happen that we can't predict, you know, Donald Trump, basically his book was essentially done when Donald Trump was elected. Yes. It came out at the same time. Yeah, you know, that, that was that. You know, we've had the pandemic. And so a lot of things have happened that we couldn't predict. And some of them, of course, can be quite bad, but some of them might be quite good. And nothing ever goes on forever. So we don't really know exactly what the future holds. And I, you know, we need to, you know, we need to, you know, obviously our ultimate hope is eternal, but we need to keep uh, hope in this world as well. because We do not know, you know, how things can change, you know, very, very rapidly for the better in some cases. So uh, you know we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't you know overly invest ourselves in a in a kind of a bleak future. And that does raise a question that I, I personally I wish I could say this was the past, but it's not. I, I wrestle with it ongoing regarding just the question of power, because you know when it comes to political power um, among Christians, at, at least the ones whom I read, there are kind of two perspectives on how we should look at power. One is the perspective of, uh, that takes a positive view of someone like Machiavelli, uh, you know, in his book, The Prince and his discourses, you know, James Burnham talks about him uh, several, you know, in, in some of his work, that, that power essentially is a good thing. And that, you know, Machiavelli, if you read him in a, in a positive light, then he, he calls for a prince who will do whatever it takes to maintain good order. So, so you could say, you know, maybe someone like Constantine or better yet even Charlemagne. You know, that, that's one view. The other is kind of the, the, the Tolstoy view uh, of power, which is, we should run from. I'm I'm exaggerating, but you know that 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 Christians should not support anyone who would use power to accomplish something that only can be accomplished by the Spirit of God working in the heart. Uh, are you are you following what 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 I'm what I'm saying yes. here? That's a tough. It's really hard because there are good people who make arguments on both sides of that. So, how do you have you wrestled with this, and and how do you come down on it? Yeah, well, you know, Chesterton uh, talked about the the Tolstoyans, and he made you know he saw uh, even you know a hundred years ago that this sort of you know Tolstoyan uh, approach had become very dominant. And that essentially a sort of a quasi Buddhism right. had infected Christianity, and it creates a sense in which passive suffering is to be preferred to, you know, you know, righteous action. 
and therefore mm -hmm. the types of things that say King David did in sort of a martial setting are things that are sort of in inherently delegitimized in the Christian world today, I think to an extent that is beyond where they should be. And so I certainly believe that uh, what you might call the, uh, you know, the, the martial aspects, you know, of, uh, you know, Christianity, being willing to actually fight to see justice done, uh, for example, ha has in fact been undervalued and we need to rediscover, rediscover some of that. And also, I think it's very clear that, you know, it's not just, you know, Christians, but many uh, others in our society, virtually all political conservatives, are allergic to the exercise of legitimate authority, even legitimate authority. Right. It's like you listen to a guy's running for governor of a state, he's in a red state, he'll say, what, elect me and I won't do anything for you. <laughs> right. And they don't. You know, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be all about limited government. The government shouldn't do anything. It's like Ronald Reagan's nine most terrifying words in the English language. I'm here from the government. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And so I think this idea, but, but even, uh, you know, even the left doesn't really necessarily, I mean, it's like a lot of highly indirect, you know, sort of way. So it's, it's odd. So I think this idea that like, if you are, you know, a father or you are a pastor or you are a politician or you are a businessman, then exercising, you know, authority, you know, exer using the power you have within your legitimate sphere of authority, uh, not necessarily this not this Machiavellian idea of, you know, making use of evil and good, but the idea that you hold legitimate authority and you have an ability to act, to use that to advance, you know, justice, the common good, you know, a, you know, a, a society in accordance with God's, you know, God's designs, natural law, et cetera, friendly to the church. That's something that, you know, very, you know, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with. You know, you hear a lot of people describe, for example, the, the increasing approach to Christian politics as being very sort of Anabaptist. There's yes. this more, it's more Anabaptist strain in it. And, you know, so it, it, it's like the idea of, uh, the, the idea of uh, fighting and of exercising authority are things that have to be reclaimed. Now, do I have an exact strategy for that? I don't. Sure. You have to have some idea what you're going to do with your authority. I've certainly thought about it in a political context more than a Christian context where I make this argument, uh, you know, kind of my, my public policy hat, put my public policy hat on is that, you know, red states should start thinking, they should stop talking about being business friendly and they should start talking about being citizen friendly. I'm all about saying, that. What should, what can we do through the exercise of the authority of, you know, state government or a local government to improve the lives and the well-being of our citizens? You know, understanding that there's not always an obvious way to do that, but I think, you know, taking that approach, uh, you is an example of rethinking the use of authority, uh, rethinking the use of authority. Well, that's helpful. Uh, even the things that I've read that you've written about the laws that uh, Indiana has passed, because you live in Indianapolis. Yeah, so, you know, the legislature here has not made me happy lately, so I've kind of, I kind of blew a sprocket about a couple things that they did. Well, I, I, but rightfully so, because... The 
and, and this is I, we won't I won't go down this path because we're we're, we're going to need to to stop, uh, but the the ongoing libertarian at all cost marriage with the Republican Party, and I'm not even sure that it's a marriage anymore. It's more like you just have now the the children running around, and and those are those are the ones who are actually. Uh, making the decisions, but the commitment to libertarianism and, and people thinking that that is the answer to all of our problems. And if we could just get into this libertarian paradise and everything would be great is wrongheaded. But again, I, I'm, I, I've appreciated seeing that, you know, that in, in your per- perspective, that, that you don't just carry water for politicians who are already in office to continue with business as usual. Right. Well, thanks. I, you know, I appreciate that. Again, I don't think it's all about political, you know, kind of called political authority. Um, you know, what are we doing in the household sphere, you know, to, uh, you know, you, you know, kind of extend, you know, extend the kingdom of God out of the world a little bit. You know, I don't take this post-millennialist view of, you know, uh, you know, the kingdom of God overtaking the world, but I do think this idea that we're, you know, we, we are called to exercise that authority in some way, um, you know, in the world. And that's one that we haven't really thought about. It's been sort of a little, quite devoid, uh, quite devoid of it. Yes, it's very easy to think about a Christian. It's very easy about to think about a Christian, you know, uh, handing out food to the hungry or something like that or helping helping the addicted, we have a very clear model of what kind of acts of mercy look like. What is our model for the exercise of legitimate authority? We don't have a lot of great templates for that. And it's something to think about. It's something that needs to be, you know, reclaimed and, and to think about, you know. And I'm not saying that I, I, I'm not a Puritan, but, you know, the Puritans had a very strong idea, too strong in my opinion, but they at least had an idea of what it meant to have a you know a rightly ordered society and how to use legitimate authority to advance their vision of you know this society that they thought they wanted to have. Uh, so it's kind of an extreme example, but I use it to just illustrate what it, you know kind of what it what I'm talking about. Well, that that that's a perspective that that hopefully people will 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 take and think more about as time proceeds. Uh, so, so the last thing I'll, I'll ask you about is that, you know, in, in your capacity as, you know, you look at cities, you look at urban areas, and, and you look at culture as a whole, in general, we do live in that negative world. And it's easy for people that pay attention to the news who, who want to, to be good cultural critics themselves, it's easy to, to cross the line from being a wise critic to uh, just living in panic mode or kind of paralysis. So what would you say to the person, if someone wants to, to analyze wisely but not get sucked into ch- the chicken little syndrome, how should one start that process? 
Yeah, that's a good example, a uh, good uh, question, again, because the, the reality is most people are not especially equipped to really do a lot of cultural diagnosis, to tell you the truth. So, uh, you, you know, and, and even I'm not necessarily thinking that I'm going to reach a lot of people at the retail level. You know, a lot of what I'm, people I hope to reach are pastors or other, or other people of that nature. And, you know, I spend a ton of time listening to what other people have to say. And, you know, a lot of that, even many of the things that I think are going to happen don't turn out that way. So it's, it's, it's very difficult um, uh, to, to look at this. I mean, I think it's, um, it may be John Maynard Keynes, who's got some, uh, some, uh, some quip about, you know, the, the people who fancy themselves the most independent thinkers are really the slaves of some defunct economist, <laughs> or something like that. And there, there is something to that, I, you know, I, I mean, a lot of what I say is stuff that I'm recapitulating from other people. And so I think it really is very, very difficult uh, to think about this. I, you know, I, I am sort of an advocate of, you know, being careful about too much social media. I just think when you, you get into these social media bubbles, you get, you know, as, you know, Facebook and Instagram seem to be particularly bad. Um, now, you know, I know, in, you know, Instagram can be useful for a lot of things. You know, my wife loves Instagram because in part, like all the restaurants here, like post their stuff on Instagram now. Sure. You, you don't actually go to the restaurant's website. Everything's on Instagram. So it's not exactly as easy to, to, to detach yourself from that as possible. But, you know, this is a kind of a toxic environment. And uh, I'll just be honest, you know. I have an Instagram and a Facebook account. I hardly ever use them. Uh, in fact, the masculine has a Facebook page that somebody else manages for me. I don't even. I don't even. Uh, I, I don't even think I could log into it. I don't even think I have the credentials. You know, I, the one my, my one guilty pleasure, if you will, is Twitter. I, you know, I do a, a lot of Twitter, but I think not getting caught up in these bubbles and not getting caught up in the digital and thinking about how to execute in the you know in the real world. And I think thinking, thinking much less about macro problems and thinking much more about micro problems, much less about what's going on in Washington or whatever, or what's an outrage here, what's going on in your family, what's going on in your neighborhood, on your block, what's going on in your church, what's going on in your community group. You know, what, what are the, I, that, that helps to focus it. And I think people are much more more able to navigate that world a lot better than this kind of a, a you know ephemeral um, if, uh, yeah you know, this uh, I'm not sure what the word is but it's more this virtual world is so out there and you can't right. really connect to it anyway other than through the propaganda that's being thrown uh, your way uh, it's uh, I think it's Stephen Covey uh, in in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People who talks about uh, you know, this idea of the, your circle of control versus your circle of concern. And the idea is, you know, your circle of control is the, the things you could plausibly influence or control. And the circle of concerns are things you're actually worrying about and thinking about. And you want your circle of concern to be bigger than your circle of control because that's how you grow. But when your circle of concern is gigantic, far out there, you're just creating an immense amount of stress for yourself. Mm. And we, we should be, I think, much more focused in on the things that we control. Because I've always said, like, there are more, you know, if you think about your block as a mission field, 
like the block I live on, I don't even know anybody who lives on it. You know, it's like, it's kind of crazy to think, you know, and, and, and I, I know that like, there's enough, you know, there's enough pain and suffering on this block that if we could just engage with some, some hurting people here, or we could create, do something at the smaller scale. Uh, I'm not saying that the, the, the whole idea that everything is all small is, is sufficient, but sometimes that's what, what's what the average person can do. And it is part of, you know, strengthening the church, strengthening your community, strengthening your family, strengthening your neighborhood. Figure out how to strengthen your family. How can you do that? You know, you're probably going to do it more in the physical world than in the, the virtual world. Right. Uh, you know, more time playing with your kids, more time, you know, family dinners together at the dinner table, et cetera, et cetera. Spending more time with your relatives. There are many things you can do that I think you can figure out on your own without a lot of great fancy things, you know, fancy, fancy insights uh, that'll probably be better than trying to, you know, engage in some of these crazy things we read on the internet. That's helpful. You, you can love your neighbor when you're physically looking at him or her and, and, and you can minister to them in some way more than you can love your neighbor when you like one of their Facebook posts. So, you know, that's, that, that's a helpful admonition uh, mm. to, to, to remember. So, well, Aaron, thank you for taking time with us tonight for, for, for being willing to, to do this interview. It's been very helpful, and we've covered a lot. I know that you're capable of talking about a lot more. You've had some really good articles, one on American affairs that I wish we could have gotten to. But anyway, uh, so I will send anyone who wants, who's interested further, go to themasculinist.com and sign up for the newsletter and listen to the podcast and the interviews. They're really good. Aaron, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good night. Thank you.